0: There it is i'm charles holmes of the ringer music show
1: and i'm cole Kushner from dissect and charles
0: and i are teaming up to create last song standing a new show where we determine an artist's single best song by debating our way through their entire catalog and for our first season we're covering kendrick lamar we're talking good kid to pimple butterfly damn mr morale the mixtapes the Lucy's, and the features listen to last song standing on the dissect podcast
1: feed only on spotify this episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings, maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life, with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay Hyundai. Visit hyundaiusa.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. welcome back um you know sometimes you have you know people in the news you have actors you have comedians you have sports people sometimes you just got to have your boy on the show (laughs) somebody who kind of does it all you know and uh you know we've had him here before he's uh he's turned into man such a brilliant filmmaker this was always a brilliant writer but now he's like Just taking it up a notch. It's so much fun to watch. But here's the thing. This is, I call what he just did, this is candy, okay? Uh, And I mean that in a lot of different ways. It's 38 at the Garden, you guys. And it is a documentary of Jeremy Lin, his effect and, you know, his stand with the New York Knicks, his basketball player and all this stuff. We'll talk about it in a second. But please welcome back Emmy Award winning and Oscar <laughs> Award winning Trayvon to Black of the air. Trayvon, what's up, man, man? How you
0: doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me back. It's, it's yes. always fun to
1: be here. I will always invite Oscar winners onto my show, Trayvon. <laughs> I don't know why you're tripping and thinking.
0: <laughs> I think this, I'm trying to break the record for most appearances on the uh, I love it. It's great.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've dropped by, and, and I said, you know, it's nice to have you as a formal guest on the show, too. <laughs> right. You know, and, uh, you know, I love talking to you. We have, of course, conversations all the time, but, you know, it's nice to have them publicly sometimes, too. Right,
0: right. And,
1: and catching up. You're always uh, – the thing I'm always impressed with you, Trayvon, you – And because my brain thinks like this too, and maybe that's what it is, is you, you're interested in so many different things, you know, and you're very, you're a very curious type of writer. You know, you don't, you don't just have a thing that you like and just do that over and over and over with some people do that very well. Right. Right, right, right. You're a curious person, you know, you love discovering things, whether it's music or, you know, art or this type of thing. And I know, uh, basketball is a big, uh, I mean, you played basketball in high school and everything. No. And this doc, 30 at the Garden, about Jeremy Lin, tell us about this. For people who aren't into sports, tell them who Jeremy Lin is and what this doc is.
0: So Jeremy Jeremy Lin was an undrafted rookie um, in 2011. Mm-hmm. And um, he was drafted by the Warriors, or he was uh, – uh, he made it onto the Warriors. He wasn't drafted. And – and we should say he was an
1: Asian American man. Yeah, Taiwan yeah. Taiwan, Asian American. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Uh six foot three. Not your yes. typical NBA yes. prospect. Right. Prospect, yes. And um and you know, he he was he spent a very short time on the Warriors team and he kind of, you know, bounced around a little bit before landing on the next. And, you know, it was one of those things where no one had ever believed he mm-hmm. could do what he did and Mm -hmm. but the the irony in that is all the signs that he could do what he did were there the whole time it's just that he was up against the wall of asian stereotypes that people think about um you know asian men and and asian people in general of like being deferential and weak and inferior and, and all these things and but everything he was doing on the court showed you the opposite. But for some reason, people just couldn't see it. And so, yeah. when he got to the Knicks, through all of the adversity of getting there, um, and and all the racism he had to endure, mm. and the things he he just kind of like shouldered on the way on the way there, once he got there and he was finally given the opportunity to play, so he he became. For a month and a half, the best basketball player on the planet on the planet, the whole world was mesmerized by like what this like, where did he come from, and uh, what this happened, and like how is he doing this? And it's like you look at the and what we talk about in the movies, you look at the pathway, and it's like yeah, he was he was always that good.
1: He was hiding in plain sight. Like why?
0: Yeah, there's a great moment where Kenny Kenny Smith says like this might be the worst uh case of talent <laughs> evaluation we've ever seen. Absolutely. And, and Kobe actually like said a very similar thing we didn't put it in the movie because the NBA is very particular about how much of their footage you can use oh, <laughs> sure. Sure. for a cer- for certain prices. Um yeah. but um yeah like everybody was after the run was over, after the the run kind of like happened and then he just became an NBA star. He just became an NBA player and he was accepted that way. And Mm -hmm. he was getting the big contract and he Mm -hmm. um, ended up winning a championship with the Raptors in 2019. Like he, he finally got what he deserved, but it took so much. It took, it took so much of, of fighting through things that no Mm -hmm. one should have to deal with. And that's what the movie is really about. It's about, what it means to to dream and have mm-hmm. hopes in America as an Asian person mm-hmm. in a place where everyone sees you a certain way, where someone who is dominating this really masculine sport mm-hmm. um, is typically seen as, you know, emasculine, is seen as, like, not mm-hmm. a strong or or a, a tough person. Like Pablo has a great line in the movie about this that I won't spoil, but he talks about, like, how people see just agents in general and played a big part in Jeremy's journey and Jeremy's struggle to get to where he got to.
1: Yeah. There's so many great testimonials in this and the movie becomes more about, as you put out, as you say, more about just this sudden rise to fame and how great this basketball player is. Like we talk about racism a lot, right? In society and everything, but this is something different. This is more in the realm of bigotry, I think, you know, because bigotry can be very subtle. And I love hearing from Hassan, who's in it. And because it also comes from the people involved, you know, yes. like the self bigotry that were you, the limitations you can put on yourself because you're led to believe a certain narrative. Absolutely. That, that was fascinating to me. Like as an Asian kid, you go, yeah, I can I should be in this box that has been you know, foisted upon us for right. years and years as an image and all these things. That was fascinating to me.
0: And that that was a big part of our director, my one of my close friends, Frank Chi. Yeah. When we when we kinda came up with this idea, that that came from in this framework that we use came from us talking about, mm-hmm. you know, the things we deal with as you know, minorities in America. And mm-hmm. spec- and he got into the specifics of in Asian culture, it's even worse because mm-hmm. you are you were told by your own parents this yes. is you have to be.
1: Exactly. The, the these are the limitations. Yep. This is the box. This is the lane you have exactly. to get in. Uh an A minus is an Asian F. Sorry. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and so
0: they grow up having been put in the box, not only by yeah. society, but by their own parents, but by their own parents. And then they yeah. have to break out of the box, uh, to do things like what Jeremy did. And, and Ronnie talks about that, about like, you know, having the support of your parents when mm-hmm. you want to do something that's outside of the box that they wanted yeah. you to be in, to play it safe. And, mm. and a big part of, you know, the, the doubt that they talk about in the film is it like played a part in even, you know, creating the movie because, when the way it came about was when I was actually in the process of making Two and Strangers, me and Frank were having a, a conversation about, you know, what was the most impossible thing we ever witnessed? Mm-hmm. And I immediately said, Obama, like that was mm-hmm. in my lifetime. That's a good what, one. As as guys in our mid thirties, like what's the most impossible thing we've ever lived through? And I was mm-hmm. like, it's definitely that at the time. Yeah. I probably agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And so for him, you know, he used to work for Obama when he was, Frank comes from politics. And okay. so he, he worked for Obama. And we should say
1: he's the director of this film. Yeah, Did a really yeah. good job. Yeah. Frank
0: Chi uh, directed the movie. Um, Very much a story that is, like, from his, like, heart and soul. Mm. And, you know, we he goes, you know, but the other thing as an Asian American, I'd have to say, is Lynn Sanity. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's really fascinating. And people should know Lynn
1: Sanity was the term that was uh, ascribed to this phenomena of, right. of first the New York Knicks fans going crazy over Jeremy Lynn. It right. was coined kind of by a fan, but then it became larger. Linsanity became everybody who wanted to live vicariously right. through Jeremy Lynn, especially the Asian American community, right? Like Beatlemania. It was Linsanity. Exactly. Yeah, it was like <laughs> Beatlemania. Yeah. In fact, were you
0: at the Daily Show when I did the bit? No, you know I got there. I got there after.
1: Okay, because I did a that whole was the thing same, on Linsanity. Yeah, yeah, that was the same yeah.
0: year I got. That was the same year I got hired. Yes. But it, it, Linsanity happened in like that. The the first part of the year in the spring. Oh, okay. And I didn't get there till the fall. Got it. Got it. Got so it. Got just, it. I just yeah. missed the Insanity. Yeah. Man. Oh. That's right, because you would have been at the garden, guaranteed. Yeah, oh, yeah, I would have yeah. found my way there somehow. Thousand
1: percent. Okay, so
0: anyhow, so we start talking about you know insanity, and he tells me this story of you know coming up from DC mm-hmm. to, to try to get tickets to the game when the, when the Lakers were in town, mm-hmm. and um, and scalpers were selling them for like seven hundred bucks. He's like, no, nah, no chance. He's like, no way. I, I'm like, I don't have that kind of money. I'm not paying that. Wow. And so. Um, He talks about going to Koreatown right next door to the garden and going to a bar and just watching the game wow. with a bunch of Asian people, like having this experience, this collective, wow. like unified experience of a bunch yeah. of Asian people watching right next door, this yeah. Asian American basketball player just mm. ripped through the Lakers. Yeah. And when he was telling me about how everybody in there was like going crazy and crying and all this stuff, and I wow. listened to this story and I got I got
1: emotional watching it actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's,
0: <laughs> I was like, how is this not, Else yeah. is not a movie. Like how has, how has no one made a documentary telling this story from the Asian the fan mm, perspective, from right. what it felt like to experience this in the same way we did with, with Obama. Like, what did it feel like to right. watch that happen as a black person, as a black American? Yes. And I was like, dude, we we should probably do this. Like, yeah, out of 38 at the garden, and just like just like try to make this happen, and what was interesting about it and Frank talked about this a lot in, in interviews as well is the doubt crept in, the doubt showed up, which is that part of him that he, that, that we talk about in the movie that Mm. Jeremy talked
1: about. Yeah.
0: He thought it was a good idea of course. And we both thought it was a good idea, but he didn't think people would care enough about Asian American stories, And so I love when he talks about this because it, it's framed in the same framework as the movie Mm -hmm. uh, that you have to, turn that off like you have to learn how to break through that in right. order to do jeremy had to learn how to break through that to do what he did and so he almost had a like a micro version of the same thing to like decide the film was worth us yeah. doing and so right. later on he came back to me and was like all right like let's do it like like i'm ready to do it and right. we just like got after it and we started putting all the pieces together and primarily the biggest thing was if Jeremy didn't say yes, we weren't going to do it.
1: Yeah. You have to have him in the movie.
0: Yeah. And so it's like, first things first, like, like the idea is great, but this is like only worth doing. If we have the central figure to tell the story as well, to be a part of that. And so Mm -hmm. we went to him, we actually went to our uh, Samir Hernandez, another one of our producers Mm -hmm. and, you know, Samir used to work for Jordan, brand Jordan and and Nike and, um, he had a relationship with the Knicks. And so I'm like, Hey, can you get us to Jeremy? Uh, we have this deck, this idea. Um, uh, and he uh, orchestrated uh, the whole conversation and facilitated our getting in front of Jeremy. And we pitched wow. him the idea. Nice. And, you know, he was a little reluctant at first just because, you know, he, he just, it was a rough time for him. Like yeah. that was a rough time for him, especially with like, having played that way so well yeah. and then getting kicked off the Knicks after playing so well. Yeah. And then you get into like the whys and hows of how that happened. And there's like, everyone had, everyone knows what really happened. Like how Jeremy ended up getting, getting shipped off.
1: But what really, what happened
0: with that? Well, I mean,
1: cause the, cause this, this part isn't in the movie.
0: No, it's not in the movie, but it's yeah. like, there was a, let's just say there was a, who, whoever was the star of the Knicks <laughs> team at that time. Hmm didn't necessarily want to... Uh,
1: <laughs> Would the initials be close to the initials for
0: California, maybe? I think so, yeah. I think it's the, <laughs> the abbreviation for California you can figure out. Okay, who, got it. Who might not have wanted that to happen. Okay, but...
1: a, little je- a little star jealousy. <laughs> and typical. Very, typical very Shakespearean, day. yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so he... He was, uh, he had a lot of feelings about this period. And so yeah. we thought about it. Cause he's,
1: he's at it from a different perspective. He's in the middle of it all. Right. Experiencing it from a completely different point of view. Right? right.
0: And that was part of why it was so important to have him. And we stressed like, you know, this is not about just making a basketball movie. Like this is so much more important to mm-hmm. us than just telling, retelling what you did over the course yeah. of the period. And he took a couple of days and he thought about it and he said, yes. And we were like, oh, this is going to be amazing. Wow.
1: And was that the thing that you think changed, well, not changed his mind, but made the difference, was making sure that the story was broadened out to talk about the Asian-American experience more than a person's basketball career, which would have been a different film. You would have gone into these stories about the Knicks and further and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, Jeremy says, like, very specifically that the reason he said yes was because this was a movie that wasn't about him. It was about mm. something bigger than him. It was about the community and the experience. He just happened to be, you know, the vessel for this, this story, mm. this experience for everybody. But he, he very much wanted to do it because it didn't center him in that way. It was about mm. something bigger. It was about a collective experience.
1: So much humility, you know, which is amazing to me too. The way he talks about it. this is in the movie, but I want to just hit this home for people. When I talk about the bigotry and the assumptions that we have, which to me makes this movie so powerful, and it's a short film, it's thirty-eight minutes. That's mm-hmm. technically called a short film, is what I call it. Which is, by the way, it's easy to watch, you know, and it's and you get a full meal, which is great, you know. <laughs> yes. I I think the short film is an unused form, actually.
0: Totally. Oh, that's why we. That's why we did it. That's why we decided to do it. Then.
1: Brilliant. You know, I think. You know, if you become the owner of that, by the way, what a great space to be in. And you already are in some ways, you know, but I love that space of the short film. There's so much you do. The 30 for 30s that ESPN is kind of a version of that, you know, in some ways, you know, some of them are longer than that short form. But here's what I want people to know about Jeremy Land. Imagine I'm talking about a black basketball player. Okay, let's say this black basketball player was... His team in high school won the state championship of the entire state, and he was the star of that team that won the state championship. Not only did they win the state championship, but of all the other players in the state, and the state is California, of all the other players, he's named the player of the year for for the state, okay? Player of the year for the state. Just just think if this is of a LeBron we're talking about. Player of the year of the state, because this is what LeBron got. Player of the year of the state. And your team won the state championship. Doesn't get higher than that, Uh, Trayvon. If you will tell us how many offers he got to play at colleges for scholarships.
0: So after after becoming player of the year in California, winning, leading his team to state championship, he got a robust zero college offers. Zero, you guys, zero.
1: Okay, we're not saying you know what. He only got five, man. That's wrong. How could he (laughs) only get five? You know, and they were. You know, it was a south. Western conference, you know, know, like, no, no, no,
0: it's California. It's the premier state for basketball. Yes.
1: (laughs) You know, he got zero. Could you, I, in my mind, when I saw that number, I'm like, Oh my God, (laughs) you know, like the, the lie you have to tell your eyes, You know, about what you're actually looking at. And that's the thing that happened with Jeremy Lynn. People would look at something, and then they had to tell themselves a lie to stop believing what they were looking at.
0: Exactly. You know, that that this
1: Asian kid could play basketball as good and better and at the top of than anyone else. That's so fucked up, when <laughs> you think about that. It's insane.
0: That. It's crazy.
1: Yes, people that's part of play. the insanity. by the way. That's totally. the insanity in the insanity.
0: Yeah, completely. It's people watching literally, they think it's a magic trick. Like, they, that's yes. not real. Like, he's not really yeah. like that well. He doesn't really exactly. like, he that. Like, he, he can't really be doing what I think he's doing.
1: The other part of it that is a takeaway for me in this, this is the part that I was like, wow, is... Who gets permission to be a full person? Oh you yeah, know? absolutely. Right, Trayvon, and white people get mad when we talk about white privilege because they don't really understand it. They always look at it at, in terms of capitalism. Well, my family never made that much money. Right, I haven't right. had anything, so nigga, that's not what we're talking about. That's <laughs> <You know? laughs> not, not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about the complete freedom to be whoever you want to be in any situation without consequence, right? Yeah. And having a voice is one of those freedoms and having controlling the narrative. That's things we've dealt with Trayvon. I had to go through that in the business, black people couldn't control the narrative, you know, and part of my journey. So one of the things where Asians could not be masculine, Mm -hmm. you know, like you can't be the fuck you type of leader. Fuck you motherfucker. This shot's going in like that type of attitude, you know, Others could have that, but right. Asians were since they're considered since they've been emasculated by us, you know, and they're also considered outsiders in some way, Sorry, motherfuckers, you can't be masculine in the right. way that that other people can. I mean, it just hits you yeah. <laughs> right in the heart because, and that's something that we're all guilty of putting that on Asian men.
0: Absolutely, and it and it it's born of. What you're fed about people yeah. as you grow up, because you know right. they're a smaller group of the population than we are, and like we're already a smaller group of the population. You know, like we talked about it in the movie, where you see those that run of clips of very famous films and very famous TV shows, very recent films, and how Asians are portrayed mm-hmm. in, in movies that came out last year. <laughs> yeah, and and it's like if that's what you're feeding people all the time about right. people, then naturally when you get into a hyper-masculine environment like the NFL or the NBA, you're yes. naturally going to think of, you're, gonna, you're already bumping into people who already kind of think not the best <laughs> to begin with. There are already a lot of stereotypes and, and shit rolling around in, in those environments anyway. Then you, you throw all that in there and naturally you get Jeremy's experience. You get the insane journey that he had to go on it's mm-hmm. to prove that he could play a sport that he'd already proved he was good at, and you look at yeah. you look at how you know even when he was in the g league a couple years ago, and I think he averaged nineteen and seven mm-hmm. and and no one picked him up right, like no one picked him up like that's no, a fluke like it's like what every single time he has to prove himself. Yeah. And you got a guy who's a who's like a veteran now at this point, mm-hmm. and at bare minimum, good enough to be on any bench in the NBA, and no one will pick him up. Is is he still playing? He's still playing in China right now. Mm-hmm. No, and we can we can't understand why. And then but then you think about it. it, and you go, "Well, what am I left to believe right. is the reason why?" When you yeah. have a player who's proven, it's what and, and it's always what teams want. They want leadership. They want experience. Yeah like to 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 nurture the new guys and right. you're like you mean to tell me you got a guy who is one of the most famous basketball players globally mm-hmm. because of where he comes from and is 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 so well-rounded and so good at what he does yeah. that when covid hits the the MSG channel just reruns Sanity games because of just how powerful that experience was and how much, how good it made people feel. And yet mm-hmm. you don't have, no one has a seat, burn, no one has a jersey on. Mm-hmm. And that that is like strange to us.
1: Yeah, it just goes to show you, and this is another thing that people try to downplay, because black people talk, when black people talk about things, I feel like <laughs> many white voices try their best to say, "We stop it black people, stop complaining. Why is color so important? Why are these things so important? But it's nice when you see from a different story, and to me, why representation is so important. Like, people can't hear it anymore from us, I feel like, you know. Um Because they think, they think one success should be enough, you know. Right. Um, everybody loves Willie Mays. Why aren't you guys done? <laughs> the, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, but, I, you know, it's like when you talk about the Korean sports bar, you know, or the Chinese sports bar, and when you see the reaction and how much it means to people – you get it why representation is so important, and it doesn't mean anything to you when you're always being represented. You don't understand right. it. You can't relate to it. Right. You know. But when somebody, when you're not represented, and there's somebody there, it means the world to you.
0: Yeah, and it's it's you know? hard to get people, especially in this country, it's hard to get people to tap into that. Feel like we look at the response. Yeah. Of the movie so far, and it's like it's been overwhelming. It's been really. Oh, that's good. great. And one of the like through lines is we've seen so many, even like even uh, a legislator in, in I think Kansas or or somewhere, Mm -hmm. an Asian legislator was talking about how this movie inspired him to to just want to be better at his job and to do the things he's been kind of like dealing Mm -hmm. with that same kind of self doubt and stuff with. And Watching people post videos of, like, I'm going to go work out now because mm-hmm. after watching that that video, I feel like I've been, like, selling myself short and mm-hmm. and, and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And even watching people who go into the film thinking uh, they're not going to like it or thinking it's one thing, there's this great uh, tweets so of this guy, a white guy posted where he literally goes through the stages of realizing Oh, like I thought, like this wasn't for me. But maybe it's because I'm white and I don't experience the mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that outsiderism in the same way that yeah. this didn't initially connect to me. Mm-hmm. And he recognized in real time, like that he was like privileged in that way. Yeah. And that was a that was huge for us to see people working through that in real, in mm-hmm. real time and being like honest enough to post about it and talk about it publicly. And that Mm -hmm. was kind of what the point was. It was to get people to see that, one, it doesn't have to be your direct experience to not only Mm -hmm. to one, matter, but to, to also for you to be able to learn something from. But also, like, you should care enough about the people around you and the experiences of the people around you to want them to have better lives and experiences, especially if you might be unconsciously contributing to their hardship. And that's what mm-hmm. black people have been saying forever. Like, right. it's just like, even the most well-meaning among us um, among, uh, in, in in white society still occasionally might do something that makes, someone, makes a person of color's life harder, even if they don't mean to. And so the more you can be aware of those things, the more you can be aware of what's happening to people around you, I think the better we collectively become at creating a society where there's 50 Jeremy Lin's, mm-hmm. and 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 none of them have to deal with their coaches saying mm-hmm. racist shit" to them, or, or any of those type of things. And what's
1: interesting is that much of what happens to Asians is what I've always called casual bigotry. You know, where you know exactly as it sounds, it's just cash. You know? <laughs> it's like my opinion because even when you see your your boy on the next Tyson Chandler, that's a Trayvon's boy high
0: school teammate I
1: thought it was interesting when he said even he had those opinions yeah. you know here's a black man who obviously there's obstacles but as an athlete an elite black athlete all the doors are open to that person Absolutely. in our society right now that's it wasn't always that way but that's the way it is now so he's had a life of privilege you know and just and for him to now be the privileged person right and being this person who's this motherfucker coming in you know right
0: <laughs> and I love that he talked about that I know.
1: I thought that was so fascinating because once again, it allows us to enter this from a different perspective. You know, we don't, we, in other words, we don't have to be defensive about it. Oh, it's, it's more white people hatred, you know, (laughs) know? no, 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 no. This soft bigotry comes across different ways. And, you know, I I thought that was just brilliant too. It's really, it's really effective in this, you know? Yeah. The honesty is, it
0: it was one of those parts when I saw when, I saw that part of the interview. I was like, oh, that, I'm so glad he talked about that because yeah. everyone was thinking it. And he even says, like, everyone was thinking
1: it. That, yes, that phrase, everyone was thinking it, is very powerful, right? Like, those are the walls that can keep you out of things when no one this is how collusion works you guys collusion doesn't have to be written down you right. know <laughs> there doesn't, doesn't have to be phrases in deeds saying don't sell to black people, you know and things right. like that collusion can just be a silent agreement that right. that everyone is thinking it's right. this is assumptions you know that are fascinating and you know the other part of this movie, of course, you know, the inverse of representation, of course, is misrepresentation. And I thought one of the worst things that Trump did with COVID was just leave it hanging out there in terms of the Asian community and how people were treated. He let that shit hang out there. Like, I give George Bush credit where the first thing he said was, you know, we cannot blame all Muslims for 9-11 when he said that and right. making sure, you know, because there were attacks happening the people you know, they have to blame everybody of a group. Right. <laughs> Some people, White people are the only people that the individuals can do shit, you know, but when it's another group, the whole group has to be blamed for something. Right. You know, when you say, when you lose representation, you know, misrepresentation can just sneak in there so fast. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and that was a big part of why we wanted to talk about the, the Asian hate experience because, uh-huh. And Hassan hits on it really well, where he talks about, you know, taking his kid to school and having to be double masked because of the stereotypes around Asian kids and Asian people and, and COVID. And I mean, even Trump, I think, called it Kong flu at one point. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. he Well, he was mocking it, but he didn't. Well, whatever. I can't talk about that. Nigga. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just bad. All the, all the way that he handled it in terms of what people started doing to. Asian Americans was so wrong and misguided. He's yeah. acting like a frat boy instead of a president right. making these stupid jokes, you know? Right.
0: And, and that was a big part of connecting, having a 10 year look back at a moment when everyone in the country rallied around an Asian American. And then today where we're all trying to, or at least some of us are trying to protect them, trying to keep people from just, recklessly hurting and assaulting and killing Asian Americans for simply walking down the street or existing. And when we were making the film and talking to people, that was, that was something that came up a lot, which is like, it's hard to look back at how, how great of a time that was. Mm -hmm. And right now it's just so Mm -hmm. hard. It's just so scary that like, there's so much stuff we left on the cutting room floor for time just Uh talking about this stuff where now you have to like protect your grandparents and like Uh all these things that you just never thought you had to do because the world turned on a dime and Uh you be in your community became the scapegoat for it. And it's like, how can you bear that responsibility? And, and it's up to someone like a president to make sure that that's not something that happens and the opposite happened.
1: Well, yeah, I, I applaud you guys for handling that with such sensitivity and, and awareness that the movie should be more than just this event, broadening it out. I thought it made it really effective. It was kind of surprising in the moment because you feel like it's just going to be a personal biography doc, you know, as you're oh, yeah. watching it and you go, Oh fuck, I'm watching something. <laughs> oh, I see what you guys did. <laughs> you know, It's like, Oh, when you watched it, this was screened at the uh, Tribeca film festival, right? It was mm-hmm. one of the premier events, right? What was that experience like for you as a filmmaker when you got to uh, see it with an audience?
0: It was really amazing because you leading up to that point, you think you know, you know what your film is, and you you feel a certain pride in it, and you you just hope that the the audience sees what you saw and feels what you felt when you were like uh-huh. putting that, when you were making it and putting that edit together, and it's like I didn't get this experience with Two Distant Strangers, like because of COVID, like there was no right. theatrical experience for us, uh-huh. kind of like seeing with a group of people in that way. Mm -hmm. And when we had our premiere screening, like, it was unreal. Like, we got Mm. a standing ovation. The audience was laughing at things we didn't even realize were funny. Like That's hilarious. Like, (laughs) jokes, places where we were like, you think it's a soft joke or it's like a throwaway thing. And the audience, they become so caught up in the experience, Mm -hmm. just laughing Mm -hmm. and going on the ride. And then it ends. And... We still have the. I'm, I'm glad someone recorded it. Like you see, the reaction of the audience, and you're like, "Oh my god! Like this is a, this is amazing. I hope this is not a fluke. <laughs> I hope this is like mm-hmm. not one of those like, oh, this is just because you go to a festival and you like you see those articles like movie at right. can get 17 minutes standing <laughs> ovation right. and things like that. And it's like, oh, never you heard speak. from <laughs> again. Right? <laughs> <I didn't laughs> do that. It was like, yeah. You're all each other's peers, but this was a group of people who Mm -hmm. they didn't, the best part was they didn't come there specifically to see our movie. They'd come in because our movie was part of a group. Mm, So the audience was very, very broad. Yeah. We were like a five, a five movie block and we were the last film in the block and There were some people there who had come out to support us, but the overwhelming majority of that audience was not there for our movie. Right. For them to have that experience when you would come there for either for your friend's movie or this other thing, or some people yeah. were there just as general festival goers.
1: Like you're dropping in at a comedy club to do a set and someone else is a headline. Right. You, just, you go in and crush it. Who's this? So that that,
0: that mm-hmm. made it really special to have that experience because we did have screenings coming up that were going to be geared more toward our audience or more toward people we specifically sold our tickets to for our film, But because it was our premiere and opening night, um, that was more of the, the kind of package we were a part of, and it was it was amazing.
1: And what's Jeremy's reaction been now that he's gone through the process and seen it and everything?
0: Oh man, he's been so transformed by it. Like it's Uh really, really transformed his experience and his impression of what he actually means to people. Because there Mm. was wow, we did a talk in San Francisco, and. He's. I think he said on stage, like he's like, I didn't realize, like ten years later we'd still be doing this. That people would still care this much about Uh this thing that I did. And by the time we got from there to Tribeca, we had a a screening that was hosted by the Knicks. It was like five hundred or so people. And and during that Q and A, he was like, like I really have learned. Not only what, why this is important and why this means so much to people, but it's gotten me into a point where I'm actually having to reevaluate like how I had been thinking about it all this time. Because every, for a week at four different screenings, he saw these crazy reactions to this movie um, about him and about his experience. And in his mind, he just like I'm just a basketball player. I just wanted to play basketball, and right. this thing happened to me. <laughs> yeah. and, and and he has that athlete mindset of like it has to be about like what I'm doing right now, like what what have I done lately? Because in a way, we are kind of forcing him to live in the past. Yeah, and I can see how when sure. someone is chased, still in pursuit of something currently, mm-hmm. like pulling them back to a thing or uh, time where you're saying, and hey, let's go relive the best thing you've ever done.
1: Paul McCartney's every interaction. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> every interaction. Uh, I just put out a new album. We're not trying to talk about that, Paul.
0: Who let's, cares? Let's talk about something Play, you did 60 years ago. Hey, I don't want to hear the new stuff. Play Let It Be. Anyway. I know. <laughs> and and so, he finally
1: realized, you know, they're not wrong. It's good stuff, you know. <laughs> I mean,
0: look, if I made hate hey you and let it be, why would I want to play anything? Else? Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> exactly. I'll travel. I'll take all of your money. I'll go all around. Yeah, and play, play I, those I would be the
1: first to admit you're right, niggas. I have not topped that. That was the best. <laughs> and the great things about musicians is you can play the same things over and over yeah, and people like will that, love that,
0: it. That's that's a beautiful it's one of the gift. best
1: things about that job. Yeah. yeah, it's
0: a beautiful gift. You get to go play. It you can make a hit. Rick Astley's living his best life. Absolutely. You know, performing, never going to give you up. <laughs> yeah. Like today, this song is 30 years old. Chappelle can't go
1: up and do tangerine again. Or, right. or, you know. It's over. You get
0: one shot. Record the special, it's over.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life, with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. How's your life changed after winning an Oscar?
0: It's been really amazing because like, I get to like do things like this. I get to talk about an idea. Mm-hmm. And then I can go directly to a person who can make that thing a reality mm. and and that's a thing that is is very hard to do in this business
1: just the notion of access has yeah. gotten uh better for you more immediate right
0: I think the difference is you get to take your at bats on the MLB stage and not the like triple a double a where it's like you got to work your way up to get to some executive that HBO or someone to get Uh them to hear the pitch it's like now you can go directly to the person who can say yes Mm. and like they still might say no at least you can still go directly to them to to get that that thing like pitched or looked at and and that makes it a lot easier to get a lot more uh you know hit a lot more home runs and so with this the funny thing about how it happened was I was the exec at HBO, Bentley Weiner, who um took this on and, and championed this at HBO. Uh-huh. She's like the absolute best. Like she I I'm I'm doing another doc at HBO um called uh High about the Bishop Sycamore story from last summer. And we were on a call and she had asked what else, you know, were we working on? And I said, Oh, I have this. Uh, doc that were just finishing up about Jeremy Lynn And she was like, oh, I've been trying to make a Jeremy Lynn movie for a long time. Wow. Like I want, I want to hear about this. Like I want to know like, like what this is. And so the next day we had a conversation and I told her what the movie was and, and what we were trying to do. And even before I sent her the rough cut, she was like already bought in on what the idea was. Uh-huh. And I sent her the rough, the first rough we had put together, just assembling the the interviews and stuff like that. And she like instantly became our champion and at HBO and she went to her bosses, um, Lisa and Nancy at HBO Docs and um they they bought it. They like it did not it didn't take a long time at all. Like they just saw what we were trying to do and they believed in it. Um, mm-hmm. Bentley believed uh-huh. in it. And all the way through this entire process, I've had a lot of exec experiences. And like, she's just been the most, like, the kind of person you want to work with who is looking for ways to make your thing happen Mm -hmm. and looking for ways to like see it come to life and and believing in what you're doing from the outset. And it was once we got internally at HBO and the film was acquired and we became officially a part of the, the HBO family, like, they've all just been so good and so amazing at pushing this film and Uh getting in front of the right people and, um, promoting the movie. And it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy good experience. And I was so glad I mentioned it on that call Uh because at that time we were, we had just finished like our last interview. And so I almost didn't even mention it. And for someone like Frank who comes from politics, This is his, like, breakout into, you know, this kind of filmmaking. Yeah. And I'm so glad that he gets to have, like, this amazing first-time experience of Mm. making something that connects to so many people and that registers with so many people. Mm -hmm. But that's also a product of, like, when you make something authentic, right? Like, when you make something... That is not, your your goal isn't to like get famous or money. Exactly. It's like, I'm going to tell a story that like is inside of me that I think people will yeah. want to hear. And then all That's of a right. sudden, everybody connects to it. And yeah. so the success of it has just been that. Has this
1: freed you up personally? Because I love what you just said. Like a lot of times when we're on the come up, we try to use, I'll say trickeration, you know, or we try to be extra clever or they're going to be impressed with this. Like you're always... It's almost like you're thinking about the exec rather than the audience sometimes, you know? Right. Or you think about the selling of something rather than the actual dramatization of the effect that it has. Has right. it has it changed the way you operate and the types of stories that you feel like you want to tell now
0: in the world? Yeah, like I definitely feel like now especially because I'm in the position where you just get bombarded with pitches from people oh
1: man I couldn't imagine and,
0: and people who have things they want to get made and they have ideas and things like that and so for me i'm I'm always thinking audience first I'm thinking there's a a gazillion things to watch right now, so many different uh-huh. platforms uh-huh. why does this thing need to be one of those things right uh-huh. why like uh-huh. why does this need to be put into the stream of of millions of pieces of TV and and film that people can watch at any second right now. And if someone turns this on, what are they going to get from it? Like, is it going to make the world or their lives better, even in the most, even the tiniest way? Is it a Mm. step forward? Is it an improvement in someone's experience? Did they learn something? Is there something to talk about when you walk away from it? I'd rather rather people walk away from something I've made absolutely hating it or, or absolutely loving it and having mm-hmm. strong opinions about it than walking away going, oh, so what are we going to do for dinner? Like that was like mm-hmm. the indifference is not something. I don't want to make indifferent projects. And so I
1: feel the same way. I don't mind people hating someone. I don't, it's the indifference that I'd yeah. rather not have. Yeah, I don't, I'd
0: rather you just not, because oh, yeah. there's a lot of things to be indifferent about. Like you, Absolutely. you click through all these platforms and like, there's so many things you can watch and yeah. you like, oh, all right. No, what's next? Like I just watched Athena. Have you watched Athena yet? No on Netflix. Oh, you got to watch Athena. Oh, okay. Yeah. By the way, please keep
1: sending me recommendations. I just went through a text chain of ours, and I was like, look at all these recommendations Trayvon gave me last Christmas. <laughs> I'm like, I've only seen a couple of these. Why am I not listening to Trayvon to watch stuff? I'm like, please send me recommendations, yeah. Trayvon. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I don't know Roman
0: Davis, but the yeah. film is unbelievable. Wow. It's so really? And it's so beautifully shot. Like, the direction is so, like, just yeah, bold and brave. And I think about this movie, I've thought about it every day since I watched what? it.
1: I love that. I love being inspired by people that have vision and then they could put it on the screen. You yeah, know? like,
0: if you haven't seen, anyone who hasn't seen it, like, please go watch it. And like, I understand, I've, I've heard there's been some like criticism of it from the french where the movie takes place but it's more about like respectability i think is my opinion yeah
1: i'll i'll go in it not knowing anything about it and nothing i'll watch i'll watch it cold
0: it's incredible it's it's true and and like that kind of stuff when i see that i go that's what i want to do to people like i want people to walk away and go i've been thinking about this movie for two fucking weeks oh that's i love that And, and then i want to go find more things like it like I yeah, wanna go kind of like, yeah, yeah. like when it recommends like other movies like this, I'm like, please show me yes, more. Yes, yes,
1: yes. Because that also inspires you as a storyteller, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. yeah and, mm-hmm. and so now that I can kind of create whatever I want, for the most part, I just want I want to make things that 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 matter in mm. some way. Like even in even in the smallest way. Like everything I make won't be two distant strangers. But like I just I won't make anything mindless. I want to make things where you can just, you know, junk food TV, which is nothing wrong with. That. I love junk food TV. Mm-hmm. And, and we, all, we all love it, and it gets us through various periods of our lives.
1: Absolutely. Everybody Tiger Kings it. Yeah at some point. But, <laughs> yeah. because, and
0: I say that because when you decide to make a project or make a movie or a TV show, you're giving up years of your time to that one thing. Right. So you have to decide, with the, all the time I have left in my life, is this thing worth two years of my time? Is this thing worth three years of my time? Is this right. like, you have to be very conscious of where you're spending your time. And so for me, mm-hmm. I want to spend my time on a project where if I'm a year into it, I still feel as passionate about it as I did when I started. Because it's easy to like go, oh yeah, you know, actually, Like how many of us have unfinished scripts? (laughs) Like unfinished. Like we were like we were so passionate about it for a
1: week. It's like, nah, I'm good. That's a script. I'm good.
0: And now it's just like (laughs) sitting off in the corner somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, if now that I have this opportunity, I wanna use it use it well and I wanna take it and and make things like Thirty Eight at the Garden and things like, Mm like the stuff that we have coming up. Um, Uh me and my directing partner, Martin, Desmond Rowe, like it's all things that, you know, when people came to us to either give them an idea for IP they already owned or Uh took an original concept from us. Every single person, you know, like not to to brag on us, but like we're bad, we're bad in a thousand. We sold everything we pinched and or anything that came to us in terms of like, already, like studios already having IP and asking us for an idea for it, we sold all of it. Uh And 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 a big part of it is because our approach is so not what people typically, you know, do when they go out to pitch or something or pitch an idea on something, which is we look at, if it's IP that already exists, it's our first question is, why should it exist now? Why should this be remade now? For Uh what reason? And then from there we go into how can we completely upend this in a way that stays true to what it is, but mm-hmm. also pushes it forward in a way that people will watch it and go, holy shit, I didn't know you could take that and do that with it. Mm. And and so it's a it's a bold swing to do that with people's with IP, but everybody's bought into it because right. they get excited by hearing this fresh take on this thing that everyone's just because what typically happens is people will pitch existing IP. And go, oh, we'll change the male lead to a female lead, or we'll change. Mm. Now, the explain IP.
1: to our explain to our audience when you say IP, exactly what you're talking about. So,
0: what I mean by that is like studio. Every studio has a back catalog of intellectual property they own. So, like mm-hmm. if the studio who made Rush Hour in ten years wants to make Rush Hour again, sure, they can For, go. Right. They can go find a writer or director and they can go say, hey, can you pitch us a new version of Rush what Hour? What is your
1: take on this? The exactly, like version. what is your, what is your yeah.
0: new take on Rush Hour now that it's 20 plus years old? Or what is your new take on uh, uh, The Blob or some, some old mm-hmm. movie that all these studios own that was popular but might want to be redone for a new generation of viewers? Mm-hmm. And so now that the filmmaking industry has become so competitive with all the streamers, everybody's trying to re like going back into their catalog.
1: Do you think that's out of caution because, you know, they feel like, well, it was successful once, maybe it'll be successful again, as opposed to why should we try something new? We know something in the past might work. Do you think that's what it is?
0: I think, I think it's a combination of, of both. I think it's a combination of how can we risk the least amount of money mm-hmm. and how can we try to make the most amount of money in an economy where there's so so many places to watch things where so right. many people so are much tre- choosing what mm-hmm. platforms to subscribe to and not subscribe to. And what do we already own that we can safely put back out into the world and gain financially from it? Because yeah. we're already, they're already going to spend big on a handful of projects to keep you like watching like Top Gun and the Marvel movies and things like that. Right. And so to supplement that, you have to make, depending on when you when you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on those big properties, you have to supplement that with the smaller things mm-hmm. to, in case things don't go well, you know? And so there's a lot of studios out there looking for people to pitch them ideas wow. on stuff they already own.
1: I, I always mention this when I talk to people like you, that there's a lot of people, uh, I'll call them craft people, people are, who want to be Trayvon, you know, and who are doing that type of thing. And I think speaking about IP, I haven't heard anyone talk about it in the way that you have. And I think it's so smart. There's like, there's IP that's right in front of us. Like Marvel is IP, you know, and it keeps branching off and all these different things, but I think it's so smart to not just think of original things, but how can you serve something a company already has? That's a really smart way to approach things. Right.
0: Yeah. Because a lot of like, I love original film like i want sure, more original content and it's it's, it's sometimes it's kind of sad that we're stuck in the the remake train where everybody's looking for mm-hmm. remakes that they already own and i'm not opposed to that if you can make it in a way where it's like oh i see why that was remade today versus like sure. oh he just remade so and so and they just like swapped out a couple characters and, and made the the man, the woman, and that kind of thing, and or it's, let's
1: let's just do it. But again, but we do it black. It's like, well, no, that's not gonna. You exactly. gotta have something to say too. There's gotta be a better reason than that. Yeah, yeah. like have a have a reason
0: to, <laughs> for it to exist. And so, um, you know, that's that's always our approach. And so I think mm-hmm. still everyone should still be pushing for original, like be original, write yeah. original movies, right? Like. All these remakes were originals at some point.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Like people believed
0: in the original story and it was so good that it stuck around for generations and now you want to remake it. But it's like, eventually we have to make new stuff so that down the line there might be something else worthy of like keeping, keeping up. One of the things that I think people who are especially looking to break in Is like go back and look at like some of the old stuff that these studios own. And If you have an interesting idea or a fresh take on it, they they'll buy it. Like they're they're looking for it because it's not going to cost them that much. It's not going to cost them. It's not going to be them. And sometimes
1: even if it costs them a lot, they'll take the risk. I was reading an article about the Amazon's Lord of the Rings uh, thing and. I'm saying thing because I forgot the their particular title, but I was reading about the competition to tell that story, and the guys that won were filmmakers. They were screenwriters and haven't been able to get anything made really for like ten or twelve years. They've been together at one point. They were going to quit the business, you know, because right. uh, because making films is difficult. It's it's very difficult. And they said, well, maybe we should go into television. You know, these guys have never run a show. They're competing against you know people that have run shows and right. high profile people make a lot of money but they all had to pitch you know to the Tolkien family and to amazon yeah. so it was real high stakes you know things it was real fascinating because it wasn't like somebody was giving so they went through about five or six maybe even seven rounds of pitching right. but they kind of grew up on the on this ip the ip was kind of a second language to them. Right. And so their advantage wasn't their experience, but their love and knowledge for the IP, you know? Right. And I thought that was so fascinating. And it and I had to admit, it makes them just as qualified as anybody to run a show. Absolutely. When you, when you know the content so well right. that you can have a fresh take on it because how well you know the content.
0: You no, know, absolutely. The, the guys who created Game of Thrones did the exact same thing. But like yeah. I don't know if you ever read Recently, the oral history of Game of Thrones came out, and, and mm-hmm. Lombardo in there talks about one of the main reasons he bought the show was because he saw uh, one of the guys at the gym reading the book on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs>
1: wow!
0: And he said, if that if that guy is so. Dedicated to that material, he loves that material so much that he's reading the book. That's the, the Schwab's trend. drugstore
1: story about a writer. The <laughs> Schwab's drugstore story, the classic story the actress is in the drugstore and says, Are you an actress? Well, you should be in my film. She becomes a movie star, you know. <laughs> but here, what is he reading? He loves that, that so much. You got a show, <laughs> you got a show, fellow
0: And, it, and mm-hmm. it, it worked like it's. You have to love something like that that much to devote. You do. You absolutely do. Especially like Thrones and Lord of the Rings. It has to be
1: second nature. It has to be as if you wrote it yourself. It has to be so ingrained. You can't be a stranger and try to research it to no, write, yeah. You gotta love. Bro. Oh, yeah, like, absolutely.
0: If you're reading Game of Thrones on the treadmill, you you love. And he's probably rereading it on the right. treadmill. Exactly. It, yeah, it definitely I'm wasn't reading. the first time.
1: He's rereading it on the treadmill because you would have been you would have been enclosed in a very quiet room the first <laughs> time you're reading that. <laughs> right. You know? Right. It's so so fascinating. You know. Is there anything you can share with us that you're that maybe is imminent or the and if you can't be specific, the the types of uh stories that you're looking at now we just
0: closed actually on a big writing directing project um hopefully they'll announce it in the coming in the coming weeks um it's it's being produced by jerry bruckheimer i'll say that much Um, and so that's that's really exciting wait Uh,
1: let me guess um Top Gun Three? <laughs> he got out. He too much money, Top Gun 2 made. Wait, Top Gun Three, Black Gun? Is that what it is? <laughs> the black, the black gun. Yeah. gun.
0: <laughs> 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 We're just gonna make we time. We're gonna swap Top Cruise by make him black. Trayvon, we got it. We got the film. <laughs> I already got a line on Jerry. <laughs> exactly,
1: exactly. That's very exciting. Is this uh a motion picture?
0: Yeah, it's a film.
1: And is this something that you might be behind the director seat or the writer
0: producer seat? Uh,
1: we're, we're writing and directing it. Yes. Oh, nice. So, no, are, are you and Martin, no, directing team at this point?
0: Yeah, yeah. We just actually came back from Atlanta directing um, an episode of Single Drunk Female with Sophia Blackdeley and Ali Sheen. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a couple episodes last year and they had us back um, this year. Oh, um, mm-hmm. really, really fun show, really fun group. Um, but yeah, we, we, well, after the Oscars, it was almost like we didn't even have a talk about where we're going to become like a team. It was like everybody just decided we were a team and was pitching us everything. That's interesting because like, there, there a,
1: have been directing teams, but usually it's brothers like Coen Brothers or Fairly. Yeah. You know, is it unusual to be a directing team out there in the world? Does it do you think it gives you an advantage in some ways? Or?
0: There's, a, there's a decent, decentish amount of directing teams. Uh-huh. Um, both related and not related to each other but the DGA is extremely protective of giving out directing team waivers they're very mm-hmm. difficult to get
1: they only want one
0: person to direct something so the DGA we in the time we didn't understand it as clearly as we do now which is the DGA's main goal is to protect the idea of of a singular vision mm-hmm. of one director one vision and to to prevent producers and other people from polluting that experience because sure. when you don't control it, people try to like bleed into it and like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to direct the second unit kind of thing. And then you like, you go handle that kind of thing. And sharing a
1: credit is, yeah, can be very problematic. It
0: becomes murky and people can then go, well, some producer can go, well, I, I direct, I was, I should get directing credit on this movie because I did X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And so to prevent that, which I guess was happening a lot in the older days, uh-huh. they've honed in on protecting the director as the singular visionary person of uh-huh. a project if they're assigned to direct it. And so that way no one can encroach on your directing credit or your directing experience in a certain way. And so when when people like Coen, the Coen brothers and the Fairley brothers and all these people, um, you know, apply to the Duffer brothers apply to be directing teams. The Hughes
1: brothers? The Hughes brothers, <laughs> remember yeah. that, yeah. Actually, but there's a
0: lot, there's so many. Yeah. Um, and then you have people like Seth and Evan who aren't related but are also a directing team. Mm-hmm. We used to joke that it was like Game of Thrones. It really is like Game of Thrones. You have to go before a committee of people. Mm-hmm. And when I say people, Steven Spielberg, Barry Jenkins, Ava DuVernay. Oh, my God. They're called the Directors' Council of the West. It's like that Star Wars Council and, of the Elders, right? And you you go before <laughs> the biggest directors in the oh world who are on this council, and you have to explain to them why you deserve to be a directing team. And then they ask you questions, like very, very, like, harsh, like, no BS questions, about why you should be a directing team and they turn down a lot of people and wow you have the hope to god that especially if you already have projects in the, in the bank like we do right they, yes <laughs> because if they say no your life just got real complicated <laughs> oh man um, and so yeah it's a it's a, it's it's super text to, to protect the director and so they take it very seriously. And like you, what
1: is what is the quality that you got across them that you and Martin have that makes it essential for you guys to collaborate? So
0: you you have to demonstrate that you have a history of working together and that in doing so, you've done it almost as if you were one person. And mm-hmm. so what what they ask for is even before you get before that council, they go and talk to they want to talk to people who've worked with you on projects, and have, and people. Some people have to write in, like write statements on your behalf to say, "When I worked with them, they were a if they functioned like a singular unit. They were always together. They they didn't disagree with each other in public. They everything felt like it was always one person." And there's a lot that goes into it before you get to that that first that one and only meeting, that chance that you have to to get the waiver and they do a lot of due diligence to, to make sure that they're not giving this to two people who are like, just kind of like casually like, oh, maybe we should be a directing team or like mm-hmm. people who want to go like divide and conquer. Right? It's like, okay, you go direct that scene. I'll go direct this scene. We'll finish the movie in half the time. Like that's another thing they're protecting, which is studios would love that <laughs> if you could finish mm. in half
1: the time. Studios would start imposing that. Yeah. Right. And so,
0: and that's another thing they protect, which is like, if then they ask you like if that if that was a scenario that arose, what would you do, and there's only one answer, and if you say anything other than no we we function as one we we're not like then yeah, you, you can really screw yourself so yeah, it was it was a scary time uh, wow <laughs> uh, to to do it. We were so nervous,
1: does it prevent you from directing something on your own or Martin directing something on your own? do you now have to t- be together?
0: Yeah, so so now everything we direct has to be as a as a unit as a team. Wow, interesting. And, and so we had to basically show like we did two distant strangers as a team. We were already working on a movie together before that as a team, mm-hmm. and right after that we directed a commercial that we won the we won an Emmy for as a team. And so everything we've sold, everything we've written, is that a team? It's, it's been like. We Mm -hmm. just like laid the groundwork of like we function as as one. And so that's basically what we had to demonstrate and prove to them that, you know, we were a singular unit.
1: Do you still operate as a writer alone sometimes or as a producer or are you guys joined at the hip in that way too?
0: No, so that we can, we can pretty much do whatever we want in that regard. Even though we write all, mm-hmm. everything we sell, we write together. Like if I want to go off and write a TV show by myself, I could do it. If you got a partner, why do it by yourself? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so like, it's like, why well, write 60 pages when I can write 30 and you can write 30? Like that kind of thing. Like, yeah, I can, I, we can do, we can produce things independently of each other, even though mm-hmm. the only things we really produce independently of each other were things that were happening before we became a team. Uh-huh. everything after that we've kind of done together um so like 38 happened when we had just started two distant strangers and or the idea at least came about and like so like he had also had a couple of shows at his production company that he was in the process of finishing with before we while we were doing two distant strangers and so we both uh-huh. had things in the last couple of years that have come out that were independent of each other but all of it was kind of predated our partnership in in a certain way but now everything we get, is, it comes to us as a team, as a unit. And um, it's been really fun. It's been really great.
1: Okay. Before I let you go, and I appreciate you being here. and I know you're a busy man now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing all that, but you've always been busy. So I wanted to ask you this, and I I want to have you back on the show with your boy, and you'll see what I'm talking about in a second. Uh, your love for F1 Racing. Yeah. And Lewis Hamilton, that's your boy now, right? Uh, I
0: mean, we he's, Look, he responds to my DMs. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You're like the little kid fanboy chasing him around the world. Uh, I would love to be able to confidently say, Lewis Hamilton's my boy. Lewis Hamilton knows who I am, uh, Uh and he acknowledges me in public when he sees me. We chat chat in DMs. I don't know if you call that an acquaintance or whatever you want to call it, but I mean, I'm just happy that as a Formula One fan, the the greatest driver in the history of the sport. Yeah. It like takes out his time to talk to me about tattoos and fashion and stuff <laughs> and any other random shit we talk about on Instagram. It's like your
1: relationship with Kendrick Lamar. You know, it's, you know, it's getting closer and closer. Right. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, Lewis is uh,
0: He's close with a lot of people that I know. My, one of my friends, Scott Budnick is producing his documentary. And so how did, th- how did this love affair for this sport start? Where did this come from? Trevor Trevor Noah. Ah. When when he, took it, when he came the Daily Show, him and David Kabuka were both like you Trevor now, now Trevor and Lewis are actually friends. Oh, okay. They're actually friends. Like when I Lewis had a dinner in in Austin that I was at last year
1: <laughs> that you were at. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> he had a dinner that I was at.
0: <laughs> well, I was lucky enough to be invited to his dinner. Oh and, man. Uh, and we were talking and uh, and he was like, Oh, where's Trevor? Is Trevor here? Like, like they're that, they're boys like that. Right. Why are you here? And Trevor's not here. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like
1: yeah.
0: Tr- Trayvon, not Trevor. Like, That's close, but not exactly. Right. But no, he, he, uh, I had met with his team to talk about like idea or projects to do together. They were looking for mm-hmm. some people to work with on some doc stuff. Um, and they were like super amazing. And, we got on really well. And so Uh they invited me to the race in Austin last year and then Uh uh, the dinner with Lewis and got to hang out with him for the night. And it was all super cool. And then since then, like every time, like I go to a race or I see him anywhere, like we like talk and he's like super, Uh super nice. And, you know, we chat on Instagram every now and then. Like sometimes I'm like surprised at how like Uh cool he is because you're like, imagine talking to jordan during the playoffs right like like, like, or, what? like as a fan just like yeah. you're like wow i thought you would have like been more like focused or like not
1: even talking to me after you reach out to him <laughs> why'd you respond to me nigga why'd you reach out to me <laughs> <laughs>
0: Like that's a, but like i mean look he that's how cool he is he'll literally be talking to you and then go out and fucking win a race and you're like wow that's really cool but now the sport is trevor got me into it him and him and uh, david kabuka at daily show like in america you think of racing as nascar you think of sport nascar maybe indycar and you don't realize that f1 drivers one don't drive in circles and two (sighs) are some of the greatest athletes on the planet, and I have such an appreciation for that kind of for technical skill because the technical uh-huh. skill required to be an F1 driver is insane.
1: Reflexes, I mean, you your core has to be rock solid just
0: to oh handle my god. those and cars, neck. right? You're ne- if you're next you're able to be it will break. Oh my god! Like when yeah. they say breakneck speeds, like that's, that's oh. the one. Interesting. Like it's if your neck isn't strong enough, you cannot mm-hmm. drive a Formula One car. Have you ever been in one? No, I can't fit. These guys are like five eight.
1: Yeah, because I was gonna say you're not gonna Paul Newman us, and we're gonna see you like <laughs> the, other, the other side of
0: that is, is weight limit, right? You want to uh, get under a
1: certain weight, like being a jockey or something. Yeah, you're not gonna yeah.
0: put some John, you're not gonna put LeBron yeah. in one car.
1: Agree. Like, the,
0: yeah, the black giant
1: in a car, right. it's Formula Five, right? Uh, it's, uh, so
0: it's um, one of those things where it requires so much technical skill hmm. um, that it's it's impressive because you're talking about hundreds and sometimes like, tenths and hundreds of a second is the difference between winning and losing a championship.
1: And what are, like, the, what are the top speeds in F1? So, you have that amount of reaction time at, like, what speeds?
0: Oh, we're talking, like, plus 200, over 200. Man. Per hour. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, like, and, like, insane abilities to, you have to be so depth perceptive to know when to break in these corners. Right. Like they, and they're, they're hitting like four or five G's in these corners Man. Um, and they lose about six to six to 10 pounds per race. Four or five G's. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like, like being in a rocket ship, they're basically driving rockets and like, you have to, you have to be in such good shape that like every race, it's so hot in the car for the hour and a half that you're driving that you Uh lose 10 pounds and you have to go like put that back in your body.
1: And you're just strapped in there like a rocket ship too, right?
0: Yeah. You just strap in and and get going. And it's, it's so, it's so fascinating from a technical standpoint that when I learned all this stuff about it, I was like, Oh, this is, this sport's incredible. Like this is unbelievable Uh that these guys can do this. And, There's nothing like seeing it up close. Like you watch it on TV and you think the cars are going fast, but when you're like standing in that garage and you're standing there on like
1: and yeah. you're watching it and they literally Were you in Mexico? Did I see
0: did you I went to Mexico last You went year. to Mexico and saw it, yeah. right? Yeah. I went to Miami this year. Uh-huh. Um I got invited to Mexico again this year, uh-huh. but I can't go, unfortunately. Um but yeah, it's it's an amazing it's an amazing sport. Um and it's and I'm glad the best person to ever do it is black.
1: <laughs> wow. Well, I'm going to have to go down that rabbit hole. I still haven't gone down the rabbit hole. I've just been kind of busy, you know, but I know once I go down that rabbit hole, it'll be the same thing. I'll be, I'll the be People will tell you know. to
0: go watch drive to survive, but in reality, like drive to survive. Is that the, the, uh, doc show? Yeah. Oh, like, okay. It's right, exciting. Right, right. It's more character drama than than teaching you why, the sport is amazing. Like what's so technically amazing about the sport. It's mm-hmm. still, is a lot of, it's fun to watch and it's made legions of, unfortunately legions of Red Bull fans in America. Is it
1: kind of like hard knocks for F1? Kind of, yeah. In a way. Mm-hmm. It's
0: exciting to watch, but it's, I think in order to really truly appreciate the sport is you have to watch it so you can get the, like get and learn the technical expertise of like why the cars are the way they are and why, like, what? why it matters. Mm-hmm. The drama stuff is exciting and fun because, like, people love sports drama, but right. though, to truly appreciate it, to truly appreciate, like, someone who can squeeze an extra, like, tenth of a second out of a car. Tenth of a second. And you're like, why that, like, a tenth, matters is that, you're like, that's... To me, Chava,
1: my dinosaur brain thinks, but they're cars, like, how can, a car is a car. How How can you how how do you get something more out of something that feels finite to me? Exactly. Can...
0: <laughs> and then that's the skill is when you see, I wish I had it in this office. I would show you the uh-huh. steering wheel. When you see the insane amount of buttons on the steering wheel and how uh-huh. much they're controlling the car. While like a video driving.
1: game while they're going 200 miles an hour, right? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Like, and the, all those settings and things that they're doing is what makes a difference between me being two tenths faster than you and being in first place. And like, (laughs) it's, it's
1: crazy. If I'm going to experience something with Trayvon, I would love to go to something like that. We should just go to a race. I would love to, you know, we'll find a a window. We should definitely do that. Um, but in the meantime, people should watch 38 at the garden guys. It's so enjoyable. Um, and it's, it's ironically 38 minutes, right? I just realized that. Very good. Very yeah. good. Uh thirtieth guy in thirty minutes. It's really wonderful. Uh just and if you're not familiar with the story, it's a great way to learn about the story. And if you are, like me, you know, it's nice to revisit it. And I believe that you and I did weren't didn't we go to Kobe's last game at the we Garden? Didn't. We went to Kobe's we went to Kobe's last game. Yeah. It turned out to be his last game. Remember we were sitting there and we were going like, Man, you know, because we were right where he was warming up. Like yeah, we were like. We were inches away from that. too. Yeah, and everyone was I,
0: saying, like, this might be Kobe's game at the Garden. I, I know.
1: Oh. I mean, it was, yeah. Was so so, we, it was so much fun. We got to experience that. That I'll never forget that. I still have that video of him warming up and everything.
0: Yeah, I still go back and look at those every now and then because it was just such a crazy, like, experience that we got to witness that.
1: I know. I feel real privileged about that. It's just amazing. But continued success, my friend. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me, Larry. 38 at the Garden, you guys. And... Anytime you see the name Trayvon Free, just just watch it. It's gonna be <laughs> it's gonna be entertaining, you guys. I promise. Thanks, fan. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Later.